guys. It's good to be with you. How's everybody doing? Sort of convincing. Maybe not. Not really. Um, yeah, like Adam said, my name is Adam, which is weird because all of us that are Adam never have never meet any other Adams. So we think we're the only Adam around. And um, it's weird to say, Adam, thanks. It's great to be here. And I'm Adam. And uh, like you said, uh, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, live at the beach, uh, married to Kristen. We've been married about 22 years, and we have a couple teenage kids. And uh, in fact, we're sending one of them off to college in a few weeks. So we're entering into a whole new season and excited about that. And um, it is really excited to be here with you guys. And if you're wondering, Church of 1122, that's an odd name. What's the Bible verse? There isn't a Bible verse that goes along with that. We started as a service inside another church, and the only time they said we could meet was 11.15 or 11.30, and so we said, how about 11.22, just to sort of be that, and um, the name stuck when we launched out, and somebody made bumper stickers, and we felt like we just couldn't go back at that point, um, and, uh, and Joby Martin is uh, our lead pastor. He planted, about the, a few years before that, I planted a church about 45 minutes south, um, and so I love this. I know this world well, and this feels like home to, to be at the earliest stages. And uh, you guys are pioneering something that's really incredible. And um, so don't like rush past this thing. Don't just don't put your eyes up so high and so far that you forget what an incredible time this is, because this is a really, really special time uh, in the life of this church. So I'm I'm excited to be here. Now, our kids are, uh, Gavin is 18, he just graduated high school, and Sophie's 15, about to turn 16. But when they were little, little kids, they were huge question askers. Does anybody have, like, the kids that just ask questions endlessly, right? Like, when are we going to eat? How long do we get there? Where are we going? Can we stop at Wendy's? Can I get, no, just, like, just be quiet, sit down, take the iPad, like that, you know? But there was something in me that in the moment, that can be so hard, and I get it, like it can be super frustrating to just what about and how and why and all that kind of stuff, but I never wanted to squash that question-asking spirit, because I felt like that was a really good thing for life, especially when it came to a relationship with God, and so today, we're going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever, and it's not because I'm the greatest preacher ever, or Adam's the greatest preacher ever. It's the best sermon ever because Jesus is the greatest preacher ever. And um, so if you've got a Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5 and find your way over to verse 17. And here's the thing. We're gonna, I'm going to kind of back up, get a running start, and then we're going to dive into verses 38 to 48. Um, but the question that I want you to ask today is just this question. Why? Why? Like, why would Jesus talk like this? I mean, if you've been a part of this series for any length of time, what you're realizing is that Jesus is saying some really, really, really radical stuff. Like, he's not, he's not turning the dial down. He's cranking the dial up. And I know we can, we can start to think, like, well, what does he mean, and how am I going to live that out? What does that mean for my life? And we can ask all of those questions, and those questions are all great, but the question that I want to ask today is just this. Why? Why would Jesus say the things that he said? And so 
Do you remember in Matthew, starting in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, it says that Jesus went up on a hill in Galilee. Now I want to show you a picture. Um, I was in Israel about a year and a half ago, last time I was there. We'll see if it can come up. There's a picture, maybe. There we go. All right, so what this is, this is Galilee. This is in Israel. You're looking down the Sea of Galilee. I'm standing on the spot where we believe that Jesus preached this sermon. And if you look kind of over to the left, you'll see those banks. Have you ever heard the story where Jesus casts legion into the pigs and then runs them off the cliff? That happens right here. It takes place right here. Right over those hill is Syria. So you can drive on a road that literally goes right between Israel and Syria and have guns pointed at you on both sides, which is real exciting. And uh, just below down here, on the, down at the end down here, this whole area is called Capernaum. That's where... So Jesus was born in Nazareth, way down at the other end of the Sea of Galilee. It was rocky. It is dusty. It's everything you think the Middle Eastern desert is. And it says when he grew up, he moved up north to Capernaum. And if you could move from rocky, dusty, dirty to Napa Valley with your buddies and fish all the time, wouldn't you do that? I mean, I got up there and I'm like, well, no wonder he moved up here. This place is incredible. The food's amazing, the wine's amazing, it's cool, there's a breeze, you can go out on a boat, all of that sort of stuff. And then just, just right on this hill is where he would have gathered everybody up and he would have preached this sermon. And so he goes through and he begins and he gives the Beatitudes. Remember, blessed, these nine blessings. And these Beatitudes are not nine conditional separate blessings, but they literally are a rhythm of the way of life in the kingdom of God. Kind of one feeds into the other. Not blessed are those who mourn just because they're sad because somebody died, but blessed are those who mourn their sin. And then they run to God and they grieve over their sin and blessing and blessing. It gives this whole kingdom way of living. And then Jesus says, Okay, out of that kingdom living, I want you to be salt and light. I want you to go out into the world and live this way that others will see a totally different way of living. And then he seems to go, that, that all seems really nice. But then Jesus switches and he gets super radical. And so in verse 17, this is what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there's a bunch of people that think that Jesus came to abolish the law. They think Old Testament is all rules and no grace, and New Testament is all grace and no rules. And Jesus goes, listen, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to get rid of the Ten Commandments. I didn't come to get rid of any of that. In fact, I came to fulfill all of that. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a little that's just a little mark on a Hebrew word. Not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And the question is, well, what is Jesus accomplishing? What has to be accomplished? And what has to be accomplished is that Jesus is going to fully obey all of the law on our behalf. And he is going to fully die for all of us not fully obeying all of the law. That's what Jesus is going to fulfill and accomplish. That's what he's talking about. He's going to actively obey, and then he's going to give his life as a ransom for those of us that don't live and try to abolish the law. Then he says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever 
whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same. Now listen, we have got a bunch of this going on. We got a bunch of people that are relaxing all of kinds of the commandments of Jesus. And we've got a whole bunch of people culturally that are teaching other people to relax all the commandments of Jesus. And it's not, it, this isn't a new thing. This has been going on since the dawn of time. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Satan shows up and he says, did God really say? What, what, what he's doing back in the garden is he's relaxing the commandment. He's trying to teach Adam and Eve, you don't really have to do all that God told you, do you? That stuff's crazy. You don't really think he meant that for today. Do you? That doesn't really apply to your life. I mean, that, God said that, but does that, I mean, we're, you know. And this has been going on for a long time. Problem is, it's not just culturally or it's not just historically. I have a tendency to do this. Like, I, in my own life, don't you? Don't you have a tendency to, to read some of these things and be like, yeah, I mean, did he, did he really mean for me to live like this? I mean, did he, he didn't really mean not a, not a mark is going to go away from the law, did he? I mean, maybe we, like, we should, it's just, we should modernize that a little bit. And I have a tendency to do that. And the bad news is you have a tendency to do it, too. And so he goes on and he says, whoever teaches people to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those were the religious law keepers. They were professional religious people. Unless you are a better Christian than Adam, you ain't getting a chance at heaven. And he says that. So he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. To which at that moment, I imagine there's all the crowd, right? They're up on, well, they're up on the hill. And then the disciples are sitting there and Jesus says this. And I imagine the disciples walk up and they go, okay, hold on, time out. We're, we're going to take an intermission. It's gotten a little long. Jesus, come on over here with me. What are you doing? Like, Jesus, why, why are you, go do a miracle, feed a bunch of people. They love that stuff. Why are you telling them if they relax a little, the least bit of the law, they're going to be the least in the kingdom of God? They tell them they have to be perfect. Like, what, Jesus, do, do some more of that breaking the bread and like multiplying the kids lunch or like pulling in the nets and getting a bunch. They, people love that stuff. Heal somebody. That's awesome. But Jesus doesn't do that. So then he goes on and he goes on to talk about, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you get angry, you committed murder in your heart. Or he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even look lustfully at somebody else or you've committed adultery. But then he goes on to divorce and he says, listen, if you divorce somebody and then get remarried except for infidelity, then you commit adultery or you cause that person to commit adultery. He says, you've heard it say, don't lie, but I tell you, don't, don't even swear. Don't even make an oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he just keeps turning it up and up and up and up and ratchets it up and up and up. And the question is, why is he doing that? Why would Jesus, why would Jesus talk? He could have just said, you've heard it, don't murder, so don't murder. 
Why does he have to ratchet it up and keep turning it up higher and higher and higher and higher? So then he gets to where we're going to sink in today in verse 38. So he says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he's quoting Leviticus 24, or really what he's quoting is a thing called Hammurabi's Code. Hammurabi's Code is about 2000 BC. It's the oldest written law code that we know of in the world. And Hammurabi lived kind of between the Tigris and the Euphrates, modern-day Iraq, that area. And they had this giant pillar, and he carved all of this law. And basically, the entire law boiled down to do what's fair. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Somebody hurts you, you, you pay them back. And that law still, in, in much of the Middle East, continues on just like it did thousands and thousands of years ago. And here's what he's saying, do, do what's fair. And fair is you get what you deserve. And fair seems logical, doesn't it? Fair seems equitable. At times, fair seems just. When Sophie was really little, she was probably, I don't know, about three years old. I was out somewhere, and I saw this dress, and I thought, oh, Sophie will love this dress. And so I bought Sophie this dress, and I came home, and she's playing, and so Gavin's over here. He's playing with his trains, trucks, whatever. And I come over, and I'm like, hey, Sophie, I bought you a present. Here's this dress. And she gets all excited and runs back to room and puts the dress on and comes back, and she's twirling around, you know, and I love it, and I thought you'd love it, and, you know, hugging. And getting. Gavin looks up, and he's like, like, what about this guy? And I looked at Gavin, and I'm like, what? And he's like, well, that's not fair. You bought Sophie a dress. And I said, well, if you want fair, I'll go buy you a dress. And he was like, no, no, that'd be good. No, thank you. We all, we all want fair, don't we? We all want fair when it works in our favor. Like what we want to do is we want to treat everybody else fair. We want everybody else to get what they deserve. We just don't want to be treated fairly. I mean, uh, about a few months ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. I've had surgery. Everything's going great. It's fine. But at that moment, do you think I wanted fair? Do you think I wanted all of the history of my life to be drug up and come to bear at that moment of cancer? No. No, I didn't want fair. Fair would not end well for me. Fair would end terribly (laughs) for me. What I wanted when I got diagnosed with cancer was not fair at all. What I wanted diagnosed with was, what I wanted when I got diagnosed with that is I wanted grace. I wanted anything but fair. So Jesus says, if you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, he said, you've heard This fair thing, and fair is common, but what I'm going to tell you is something totally uncommon, something totally different, a whole other way to live. And what he's going to say is he's going to lay out what radical grace looks like over against what fair looks like. And he gives these five examples. So in verse 39, he says, the first example is this, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Now, here's the thing. 
Jesus is not saying stay in an abusive relationship, okay? First of all, if you are in an abusive relationship, you need to get out, get in a safe place, come talk to Adam, let the church help you. But what he is saying, I mean, you read that and you're just like, Jesus, you can't be serious, right? I mean, you, you can't actually mean if somebody hits me, I should turn the cheek and let them hit me again, right? He goes on, the second example, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And then I read that and I go, but, but wait, how do I resolve a conflict if I don't sue somebody? Like, how do I, how do I, how do I hold somebody accountable? How do I hold a business accountable for somebody that injured me or hurt my business if I don't sue? You're not really serious about that, are you, Jesus? Because it seems like the fair and equitable and just thing to do would be for me to lawyer up and then sue them and then make them pay and make me whole. That's what seems just and right and equitable. You, you're, you mean I shouldn't do that? And then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So I think I don't want to be forced to go anywhere with anybody. I don't want to be told what to do. And you're telling me not to just do the bare minimum, but I should go on beyond the bare minimum when somebody's forcing me to do something, some kind of work or something like that. I should go above and be like, Jesus, you, you do realize the world is not Chick-fil-A. Everything's not my pleasure. Like, <laughs> you know. And then he says, give to the one who begs from you. To which I'm like, but Jesus, aren't we just enabling like, haven't you read the book, When Helping Hurts, and you're not really helping the person who begs by giving them? Like, there's a guy down at our street corner, lives not too far from our house, and he was out there all, all spring, he was there, and every day he was at this one street corner begging every time, every time, every time, and I just, like, roll up my window and act like I was on my phone, or, you know, you're supposed to be on your phone in your car, but you know what I'm saying, anyway, and I'm acting like anything but to see the guy, and he's, like, right here in my window every day at the stoplight. And then one day, one morning, I'm going to work, and I see this car pull up in the Wawa parking lot, and who gets out of a really nice car? The guy that's begging at the street corner. Somebody's dropping him off to get out and do that. And I think, yep, that's why I don't give him money. Of course, he's just going to take advantage of me. Haven't you ever thought that? You pull up and you think, I mean, at best, what are they going to do? They're going to go buy Boone's Farm? I don't know. They're just going to, they're going to, I'm going to get taken advantage of. So Jesus, you can't really be serious that I'm supposed to give to the person that begs. And he gives the fifth example and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Like if I asked you right now, hey, can I borrow a hundred dollars? How many of you would like look down into the left hoping that I didn't look at you? Because you're like, I don't, I don't know that guy. Like, he's not from here. He's just going to get on a plane and go home, and I might not get my $100 back. Have you ever had, like, your lawnmower? You see your neighbor out there mowing his yard, right? And all of a sudden, his mower conks out, and you see, and he's working on it, and you're like, oh, no. Joe's coming over, and he's going to ask to borrow my lawnmower. I don't, he broke his lawnmower. I don't want to give him my lawnmower. You've thought that, haven't you? Am I the only one who thinks, do I really have to, like, lend this thing? because they're just going to break it and ruin it. I had a friend that actually told me one time, if you're not willing to lend it, don't own it. Think about that one. I mean, that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? 
do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So you read that and you go, okay, Jesus, I get it. You're, you're not saying do what's fair. You're saying do something radically other and different and totally other different. But then he turns the knob up again. He ratchets it up even further. In verse 43, he says, now you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, now what Jesus is doing, he's quoting Leviticus 19, 18 right here. But what he's doing is he's correcting a misinterpretation of Leviticus 19, 18. You do, this is not the point, but you do know that not every interpretation of the Bible is a correct interpretation that you should accept, right? Jesus is correcting bad interpretations of the Bible. And what, who, who gets to determine what is a correct interpretation of the Bible? God gets to. And so what's incredible is right here, you have Jesus, we, we sort of miss it. We read over like, oh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But what Jesus is doing right here will end up getting him killed. Because what Jesus is doing is he's claiming to be God. He's saying, I have a definitive interpretation of the word of God. And the only person that could ever say, I know perfectly the mind of God, would be God. And Jesus is claiming to be God. And so he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Now, what that doesn't mean, so that you may be, doesn't mean that will cause you to be sons of your father in heaven this is not work salvation what the we can get into it but what it literally means is in order to show that you are love your enemies pray for those who persecute you in order to show that you are sons of your father who is in heaven he makes the sun he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward do you have he's saying that's common. That's fair. Do not even the tax collectors, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were Jewish people that sided up with the Roman Empire to use the weight of the Roman Empire to oppress their own people to suck as much money out of them as they could. And he's saying that that's like what the worst of the worst does. You do the same. And if you greet your, bro- your only brother, what more are you doing than others? Again, that's fair and that's common, that's normal. Don't even Gentiles, not godly people, do the same? He's saying, listen, you, you love people who love you? Good for you. Everybody does that. You're super proud you said hi to somebody at church today? Good for you. So does everybody. Everybody says hi to somebody they don't know. All the time. And then he says this in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here's the question I, want, I, I asked to ask at the beginning. Why would he talk like that? Why would he turn the dial all the way up, keep cranking it up and up and up and up and up, all the way to the point where he ends and he says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I want to give you three reasons why I think Jesus does this. And here's the first reason. The first reason is Jesus is telling us something about the character and the nature of God. We 
we tend to read the Bible in a very me-centered way, don't we? We, th- we come to this often and we read it like, what does this have to say about me? And how do, what am I going to do with this? And what am I supposed to get out of this? And that's all right and good. But first and foremost, this book is not about us. It's about God. It's for us. It's just not about us. We're not the center of this story. God is the center of the story, which means whenever we come to read this thing, the thing we should be looking for is what does this have to say about God before what does this have to say about how I should act and I should behave? And so when we read something like this, what we have to say is what does this say about God? And what this says about God is some incredibly good news. I mean, if you, the, the thing that it says about God is that God is first. Every single one of these things in here God did them all first in Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Jesus did that. He got beaten and didn't say a word. Somebody wants to take your cloak, give him give something else. Jesus took all of his clothes. He could have had a minute ended the gambling for his clothes at the cross. Or somebody begs of you. Think of the thief on the cross. He's begging Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, you're getting what you deserve sorry you're getting what's fair no he's like no man today you me in paradise let's do this thing and so god is first god did all of this which means god isn't just a responding god he's an initiating god second thing that it says about god is that god is loving it says in verse 44 love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you So that you may be, or you would show that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Which means, this is the way God acts. God loves his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love us because we showed up to church. God doesn't love us because we cleaned up our behavior. We clean up our behavior because God loved us while we were a mess. While we were enemies, God loved us says that God is caring. Think about this. In verse 44, it says, pray for those who persecute you. Have you ever thought, I mean, it is astounding to think when you pray, the God of the universe hears you. Think about that. Think about how deeply he cares for you, that he would hear you when you speak to him. That out of all the people and all the circumstances and all the situations going on at any moment all over the world, God hears and listens to you and to me. That's how much God cares. Or that God is a father. Verse 44 says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Verse 48, he calls him a heavenly father. God is not some distant deity. He's not some concept. He's not some theory. God says, I want to be known as your father. Literally, the the Aramaic word used for that is Abba. And it's supposed to sound like breath, like Abba, Abba. Like I remember when Gavin was little, brand newborn, bring him home from the hospital. He wasn't eating real well and nothing would calm him down. Except in the middle of the night, I would take him, and I would go down into our living room, and I'd take my shirt off, and I'd lay down on the couch, and I'd take his shirt off, and I'd just lay him on my chest. 
and I'd let him sit right there. And then after a little bit, it's like my breathing and his breathing would get like synced up and he would just calm down. And that's what that, I think that image of calling God Abba is. It's like Abba, that our life would come in such sync with God. Not that he's some distant deity, but he's so close that his heartbeat, we would feel it and know it. And that he's our heavenly father. And that God is, he's good. And he's good to all. I mean, look at this. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. If God wanted to be fair, he could just say, son only rises on you guys. You guys, sorry, dark all the time. Rain, you guys get rain. You guys, no rain. You live in a drought forever. That's what God could do that. And he'd be perfectly justified and do it. He would be fair in doing that. But God is good. He's good to all of us. There is a grace that floods this earth, whether we're righteous or unrighteous, good or bad. There is a, there is a general grace that just floods this earth. And that God is all-powerful. Look at this. It says, he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Those things don't just happen. Like, it isn't just mechanistic. God is actually causing the sun to rise. And he's causing rain to fall. Which means he's controlling what seems to be the most mundane things around us. God actually sweats all of the small stuff. He is all-powerful. And he is sovereign. The first time I read this, I completely missed it. It says he makes his son. Not the son. It says his son. Like that, that big ball, that's mine. I, I'm in control of all of it. He makes his son to rise and to fall on all of that. And God is holy. It says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God is perfect. Now listen, how good is this? That God is holy and he's sovereign and he's all powerful and he's good and he's a father and he cares and he loves and he goes first. Think about that. That is stunningly good news. But it's not just that Jesus tells us this because he wants to communicate who God is, his character and nature. Jesus is telling us this because he wants to say something about the kingdom of God and what life li is like in the kingdom of God. If we had time, we could get all down into it. But Jesus is telling us this stuff because he's actually serious about it. He is actually calling his followers to live a completely different other way. He's not saying pull away from the world. He's saying actually dive into the world, but just don't be of the world. Live completely differently in the world. Like love like nobody else loves. Love your enemy. Actually talk to the guy that hurt you. Don't sue your business partner. That I was going to say a word that probably would get me in trouble for my life on the podcast. Don't do that. And he's serious about it because he has an agenda that we would be salt and light in this world, that we would live in such a way that would just be a head-scratcher to everybody else. 
And all these people that live around this building and around you guys, and they're your neighbors, they would just go, why, why do you do that? That is so weird. Every time I ask to borrow the lawnmower, you fill it up with gas and give it to me. Nobody else, why do you do that? And he is dead serious because he wants us to live out his character and nature and demonstration to the world. And then the last reason that Jesus does this is because Jesus is actually telling us something about salvation. And what he's telling us about salvation is that it is impossible for you and for me to achieve on our own behavior. He raises the bar to the point where he says, you must be perfect as God is perfect. The whole reason he's teaching all of this is because he actually wants to raise the bar so high that it becomes completely unattainable. And you and I completely give up ever trying to achieve salvation by our behavior and our perfection. And we would just throw our hands up and go, God, I quit. I'm so I can't do it. It's impossible to which he goes exactly. But I did it for you. I lived the perfect life for you. And I sent my son to die so that when you didn't live this thing out perfectly, you would trust me instead of trusting on you. The whole reason that he preaches this thing is so that we would quit trying to be perfect. And we would trust and have faith and depend on a heavenly father that is perfect and loves perfectly and accomplish the salvation for us perfectly. The question becomes, well then, if I can't be perfect, how do I enter into the kingdom of God, which circles all the way back to the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you, do you actually mourn your sin? Because sin, the wages of sin is death. We should mourn our sin. We should come and we should see, okay, I have to live perfectly. I can't do that. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And I mourn that because there is a loss there. There's a loss of life in that. And then it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is literally like a horse riding term. It's like a bit in the mouth. It doesn't mean weak. Think of a thoroughbred horse. And the, the bit goes in, and a meek horse is one that's turnable by the rider. That you and I would give up control of the direction of our life. We would mourn our sin. We would recognize our sin. We would mourn our sin. And then we would give up the control of our life over to the one Say, here, God, you take the reins. You guide my life. You direct my life. You be the one who's in charge. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. So listen, there's some of us this morning that just need to enjoy and rejoice in the character and the nature of God. There's some of you all that are, that are going through really, really hard things. And the most God-honoring, God-glorifying thing that you could do is just settle in and enjoy God for being loving and holy and caring and a father and good. 
that, that you would stop trying to use God or trying to manufacture life and goodness and happiness, and you would find all your satisfaction and all your enjoyment in God. That could be the most worshipful and the most honoring thing that you could do to God for God today. There's a whole bunch of us here that really need to get serious about living out this kingdom ethic. That need, that need to stop relaxing the law. They need to stop teaching others to relax the law. There's, there's a bunch of us in this room, me included, who probably need to go over and turn the dial of the, the way I live up and ratchet it up to a ridiculous level. Because the, re- the reason I'm not actually salt and light, often we think, man, if I could just tone it down and be a little bit more like everybody else, then I would, then people, I could draw people in. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. The opposite needs to be true. You want to reach your friends? You go over here and live a completely different kind of life. And in that, you will be salt and light. So there's some of us that just need to live differently. You have a story of how God has impacted your life. And you need to own that. And you need to live that thing out before other people. And then listen, there's a bunch of us that honestly just need to be saved. There's a group of us that have kept God at arm's length because we think that what he requires is perfection, which he does, but we think we have to measure up to that perfection, and so we look at our life and go, I can't measure up to that perfection. And so I'm going to move away from God, and that's rebellion. We've moved away from God in our rebellion. And there's others of us who need to be saved from our religion. That, that we actually think, yeah, you know what? I see all this, I've nailed it, crushed it, done it, perfect, awesome, better than everybody else. And Jesus would say, both the rebellious and the religious need to be saved by grace. There's some of us in this room that just need to lay down the achieving, either the achieving of our own life in rebellion We're trying to achieve perfection in religion and lay it down and trust Jesus. You and I were created for a perfect relationship with God by a perfect and holy God. And sin broke that relationship because God is holy. God cannot accept us. God is perfect. And therefore, God will not accept imperfection. And God is a God of justice, which means God will not tolerate sin. He will actually bring justice to bear on sin. And we want this, don't you? You want a God that's holy. That's the definition of being God, is being perfect. And we want a God that is just. We want a God that looks at things like human trafficking and slavery and does something about it. Not just sweeps it under the rug, but actually brings just judgment on that. The problem is when that comes to bear on me and you. When we come in contact with a holy and a just God, that doesn't go well for us. But God isn't just holy and he isn't just just. He's also merciful. Now, how do you have a God who is holy and just and merciful? without diminishing any of those. 
How do you have a God that is 100% perfect and it demands 100% perfection and doesn't give on any of it and have a God that is holy, perfectly, 100% just and doesn't give on it and a God that is 100% perfectly merciful and doesn't give on any of it? The only place that happens is at the cross of Jesus Christ. The only place you can reconcile those three things all being totally, perfectly, fully lived out. Justice, holiness, and mercy is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And some of us today need to put down our rebellion, put down our religion, and run to the cross of Jesus. And trust Him and trust His perfection and trust His payment at the cross for that. That's why Jesus teaches this. Jesus teaches this so we'd hear the good news of who he is, so that we would live into that kingdom ethic and that we would quit trying to achieve our own salvation and we would depend on him for it. And so let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for these words as hard as they are. Father, I thank you that you would display your character and your nature. You are so good and you are so loving. You are so kind. You are so holy. You are so perfect. God, thank you for a glimpse of who you are today. And Lord, I pray for those of us in this room that feel a conviction from the Spirit that we've somehow relaxed and not taken you seriously and not taken you at your word. And Lord, I pray for those of us that need to live out this kingdom life in front of everybody else so that we would be salt and light to the world. And Jesus, I pray for those of us in this room right now who are feeling this thing deep down in our gut and we can't explain it, but we know that what it means is we have to throw our hands up and surrender. And we have to say, I give up. Lord, I, I, I put it all away. I put all my achievement of trying to do life my own way or trying to achieve perfection. And that we need to run to you and run to your cross. And so, Lord, I pray in this time that we would respond to that good news. And that we would worship you. That we would surrender to you. And that you would get all the glory and all the fame and all the renown. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.